0: Amen. So we are studying the book of Revelation, and we have just finished uh, an opening vision of Christ and then seven letters from Jesus to seven different churches. And now, in the fourth chapter that you just heard read, John ushers us into, by means of a vision, the very throne room of God. And as as we explore this together today, I want you to realize that this is not just a future reality. It is. It's also a present reality. This exists. <clears throat> this is what's transpiring even now um, in heaven where God reigns. And so that should bring hope. As you read this, if you, especially if you are a sufferer, I hope this brings hope to you. That the world has not gone out of control, your pain is not meaningless, your sorrow is not without um, reason, God is on his throne. He is reigning and ruling over all that we are facing, and he is glorious as we're going to see. Look look at chapter 4 with me, verse 1. So after this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. So John sees another vision. This time he sees a door standing open in heaven. It's the best of images. There's a way in. Okay? There is a way in, and he sees it. And he hears the same voice, sounds like a trumpet, he said, that he heard in chapter 1. Remember, in chapter 1, I was in the Spirit, John said, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So John turns and he sees the one speaking like a trumpet, and it is Jesus The Son of Man. Now, most of you already knew that because the translators of your Bible made this part in red letters. So they they clued you in. Um, Jesus is the voice that's inviting him through the door into heaven. So there's a very simple principle in play here. How do you get to heaven? Through Jesus. He calls us to come. It is only by way of Jesus and his good work, sacrificial, loving work for us on the cross. Jesus says of himself back in John chapter 10 that he himself is the door for the sheep. And all we're about to see, everything that is about to be offered to us today, everything that's unfolding, it is going to be stunning as we look at it only comes through accepting the invitation of jesus only through faith in jesus he is the door he says he says i am the way the truth and the life it is only by me that you come through the father and so jesus is the only way that folk like you and me can approach the throne of god and john passes through that door he sees the throne verse 2 i was in the spirit And behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, I figure you can tell a lot about a king by the throne that he sits on and the people who are around it. Um, There's a saying in our culture that... uh, if we were to grant it, I am the king of my castle. I know that's a disputed saying, um, but imagine that I am the king of my castle. If I was the king of my castle, this would likely be my throne, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is my chair on the porch. Um, and if you, if you look carefully at this, at this throne of mine, um, you could tell something about the kind of king who rules and reigns on my porch. Having been banished from ruling the house, I now pretty much reign on the porch. Um, But if you look closely, if you explore the history of this throne, you would find that this king buys his thrones used on Craigslist. This is not a good sign if you're looking for a king. Now, another clue you would look at is look and see who's around the throne. And as you see, there's no one around the throne. There are no subjects bowing down. There's the occasional bird and squirrel who largely ignore me. But there's no one bowing down on this throne. So you could safely assume that this king, having been banished to his porch, seated on a used Craigslist throne, surrounded by no subject, is not really much of a king at all. And and of course, you'd, you'd be right. But the throne that Jesus has invited John to see And for us to see through his vision, it's very different. It's a great white throne. And it's surrounded by innumerable subjects. We'll we'll look at some of them today. It's a very different scenario. Again, in verse 2. I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So... The one who sits on this throne, he says he has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are precious stones, and um, it's not surrounded by uh, the remains of Craigslist furniture. It's surrounded by a rainbow. It's like an emerald. So, remember, okay, we have left the letters, the seven letters that Jesus um, spoke to the churches and now we've returned, as was the case in chapter 1, to a vision that was given to John. A vision that it was so uh, privileged, so great to hear and to, for us to look in and that a blessing is promised to us simply for reading it. Okay. But as you would expect, a vision is highly symbolic. It's not to be interpreted literally like you would some kind of other literature, like the tax code, for instance, Okay? This is very different. This kind of visionary literature, it's often called apocalyptic, has more in common with poetry, the way you'd read poetry, than the way you'd read the tax code. So when John says that the one that's seated on the throne has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, he has the appearance of precious stones about him, he's not saying our God resembles this guy, right? That's not what he's saying. Don't take it literally, They are symbolic of great wealth and great beauty. Um, This is not the gravel that you'd find in your driveway. These are rare, precious stones. More the way we would think about rubies or diamonds. And they are um, luminous kind of things. They reflect the unapproachable light of the glory of God himself, multicolored, multifaceted, coming out from the throne. Now, the rainbow that's around the throne, the rainbow in Scripture is commonly a symbol of God's mercy. Um, It was the first symbol in the flood of Noah's day of the hope of a new creation. And so, so here you have a throne associated with the reign of a great king, um, but not only his reign, a throne's also associated with the judgment that's issued from that throne as part of his reign, but it, and we're gonna see that in chapters ahead. We're gonna see amazing, um, awe-inspiring judgments coming from this throne. But pay attention here that this throne of judgment is surrounded by a rainbow of mercy, okay? And I, and I want us to hold on to that imagery, this is not a throne you can buy on Craigslist. Okay. But we are invited up with John through Jesus to see this throne. And, and even more, you remember, Carson, if you are here last week, taught us on the last of the seven churches, the church in Laodicea, and he closed with something really stunning. Uh, verse 21 of that letter Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You who are in Jesus, who remain faithful in following him, you will be seated with Christ on this throne. How does that strike you? It's just pretty amazing. So in just this chapter and the next one, The throne of God is mentioned 17 times. Um, 38 times in the book he refers to the throne of God. You could call this the book of thrones if you wanted to. And in this throne, and the one who sits on it, it's the centerpiece of the vision that we're looking at. And it's the centerpiece of everything that's taking place in the book of Revelation that's yet to come. It's the centerpiece, as we'll see, of the life of the church. It's the centerpiece of all creation. It's the center of the universe. Everything centers around this throne, the throne of God, and as we'll see next week, and of the Lamb. Would you say your life centers around this? I mean, does your life center around the throne of God? Worshiping God who's seated on his throne. Is that why you go to work? Is that the flavor of your family? Is that the way you use your free time? Is that how you use your money? Is your life ordered around this, this throne? Um, Eugene Peterson says that um, in worship, God gathers his people to himself As center. So that's what we're doing here. We gather around the throne to worship the God who is seated there. He said, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there's no center, he says, there's no circumference. And people who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose so what's at your center what do you order your days around what matters most to you what do you worship is it you and your little craigslist throne do you work mostly for you does your family mostly revolve around you Do you spend your free time mostly for you? Are you worshiping you? It's interesting. Uh, There's a guy named John Burrow. He played football in the late 90s for the Atlanta Falcons. If you're a Falcon fan, you remember 1998, you actually got to go to the Super Bowl. He was on that team. And this is what he writes about that experience. And you know, it's the show of all shows, right? It's the apex of a player's career, and it is like, all No holds barred in terms of the celebration. And he says, in the middle of all the explosions and hoopla and hype, all I could think was, is this it? Is this all there is? And he says, this doesn't even compare to worshiping my God. See? He got it. He, he was ordered around that greater throne. John offers us better. Jesus invites us to better To worship the one on this throne of indescribable beauty, holding the judgment of the world in his hand, yet surrounded by mercy, and as we'll see, amazing beings bowing down around this throne to him. Look at verse 4. So around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, "...clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." So, around the throne, 24 thrones with 24 elders... And again, in this kind of literature, numbers matter not just for counting purposes, but they're often symbolic. And so um, scholars believe that here what we have representing these elders are the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, all worshiping around the throne of this awesome, amazing God. Um, likely these are angelic beings who represent, really they represent us around the throne and from that throne emanate thunder and lightning Um, you know when I was a a kid I figured out that you could uh, figure out how far away a lightning strike was by uh, counting how long it took you to hear the thunder I don't know if you've ever done that but from the time of the strike to the time you hear the thunder, every five seconds is about a mile. So you do the one Mississippi, two Mississippi thing. You get the five, it's about a mile away. Um, if it's simultaneous, you're terrified. Okay. I mean, it is, all, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It is on top of you. I think that's what we're seeing coming out of the throne here. That kind of symbolic power and judgment. And then there's seven torches there. If the scene isn't shocking and stunning enough, then then there's seven torches ablaze there. They represent, we're told, the seven spirits of God. This is language we saw in chapter 1. And again, it doesn't mean that there are seven different spirits of God. There's one Holy Spirit. And again, numbers matter. So probably what we have here is a reference to the fullness or the completeness of the Spirit is there because 7 often represents that in the scriptures think the 7 days of creation the completion of creation the fullness of creation probably that's what we have here uh, represented by those 7 torches and then there's something that resembles a sea of glass like crystal before the throne so i like to f- flatwater kayak Uh, Steph and I have a couple of big 17-foot sea kayaks, and so I go out. My favorite place locally is is here. Um, This is a picture of uh, Beaver Dam Lake at flood stage, and took that picture. Uh, It's just pure dumb luck in your kayak when you get a good picture, but it was an absolute. It's one of those mornings. Look at the water. It's like glass, and you see the reflection of the sun shrouded in the lake more clearly than you can even see it in the sky. Um, That's kind of what he's talking about here. There's something like a sea before the throne. It's like a mirror, it's like crystal, and it reflects all this amazing imagery of God and his colors emanating from the throne that rainbow, the torches. The thrones, it's all reflecting and magnified almost in this sea that is before the throne. It's it's stunning, the reflection. Absolutely stunning. And Jesus says, come up here and see. He says to people like you and me, come into the throne room of God. See what it's like. Spend eternity here. Live your life now, ordered, around this there's more there's yet another circle of worshipers around this throne so you've got the rainbow around it you got the 24 elders and then you've got these four creatures in verse six around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion second living creature like an ox third living creature with the face of a man fourth living creature like an eagle in flight And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Okay, officially starting here, Revelation starts to get a little cray-cray, right? (laughs) I mean, let's just be honest. John is grasping at how to describe what he saw. It's like this. It's like this. He doesn't say, there was an eagle flying around, and then there was a lion. He says, it's like that. It's like this. And what what this likely represents is all the different aspects of creation. You know, again, the number four sometimes is that number of fullness, like the four points of a compass. It's every direction. These four creatures represent all of creation. Um, The noblest, the lion. The strongest, the ox. The wisest, the human. The swiftest, the eagle. And all of these representative animals um, representing creation they're ordered around the throne, right? They're all giving glory to the one who sits on the throne, who, as we'll see, is their maker. Um, so again, are you there? Are you, are you worshiping the one who sits on the throne? Is there is there a rhythm in your day where that where you catch yourself there you pull yourself there you open up the scriptures and you go there instead of just just going and going and going without thinking about the God who loves you who reigns on this throne in all this incredible glory are you there is that how you're ordering your days what disorders your soul from orbiting around that throne in worship is it worth it That thing that takes you away from the throne, is it worth it? Pastor Sam Storms outlined our passage beautifully. He says that God is enthroned and he's encircled and then he is extolled. He's exalted in in praise. Look at verses 8 through 11. Um, Day and night, these creatures, they never cease to say this. to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So there's a lot going on around this throne, right? Um, Angelic beings. That scripture indicates if we met one, we would be tempted to fall down and worship that being. Those beings are bowing down by the dozens around this throne giving glory to the one who sits on the throne. What kind of king must this be? They call him, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Our Lord and God. Historians tell us that's the language that then-Emperor, Roman Emperor Domitian used to require of his people to him. You must call me your Lord and your God. And so here... um, these, these beings come along and they say, no, no, no. There's one who's worthy of that title. Exalted above all emperors, all presidents, all kings, all queens. He sits on the throne. Four creatures, all of creation, declaring the holiness and the eternality of God, the, f- the foreverness of God. Holy, holy, holy. They're not stuttering. It's intentional. The repetition magnifies the truth. This is a kind of purity unimaginable. Um, There is never this level of holiness ascribed to anyone other than the God who sits on the throne in all of Scripture. No one other than this God here by these beings and in Isaiah 6 by another similar being... um, Call him holy, 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 unique, set apart from all evil. A.W. Tozer says that God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness. It's beyond us. It stands apart, he says, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he can't even imagine. So what must it be like? What will it be like when we pass through that door one day and we literally stand before this throne? Holy, holy, holy is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Again, the one on the throne is totally unique in this way. He is eternal. And three times his eternal nature is alluded to here. Who was and is and is to come. Verse 8, he lives forever and ever. And in verse 9, or verse 10 rather, the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. One of the greatest minds to grapple with these kind of things was St. Augustine. And he was thinking long and hard about this idea of the foreverness of God and his unchanging nature and all of those kind of things. And and he bursts out in prayer. Let, Let me read you his prayer. He says, You are my God. You are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest, and all-powerful, most merciful, and most just. You are unchangeable, and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You're ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You support, you fill, you protect all things. You create them, nourish them, bring them to perfection. You seek to make them your own, though you lack for nothing. You love your creatures with a gentle love. You treasure them without apprehension. You can be angry and yet serene. Your works are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. You are my God, my life, my holy delight. But is this enough to say of you? Can any person say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. Even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you. And so, all creation is represented by these four amazing creatures. They're declaring God's unique holiness and foreverness. And the 24 elders, they're busy too. It says that when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, if you ever wonder where that band got their name, Casting Crowns, yep, right here. You ever wonder where that song lyric comes from, Casting Down Our Golden Crowns Around the Glassy Sea? Yep, right here, this act of worship is where those expressions come from. And it symbolizes absolute submission and worship so if you're a if you're a rival king or queen or prince or princess or whatever and you you bring your crown and you lay it before the throne of another you are submitting to their rule and so here here they are these 24 elders they kind of represent us and they're laying their throne their their crowns down at the throne and they're saying yes to God okay in all things In all ways, these majestic beings that we would be tempted to worship if we saw them all bow. No rivalries here. No rival kings or queens. They cannot help but bow before. This display that's going on, that's reflected in the sea, it's like crystal. And these 24 elders declare the worth of God to be worshipped because he's the maker and sustainer of all things, you are crea- for you created all things they say by your will they existed and were created spoken into existence by the word of the one on the throne he spoke it into existence and Matt Woodley writes about it he says my scientist friends have told me that there are 50 billion galaxies in the universe each of these galaxies has an average of 2 to 4 billion stars so take 50 billion and multiply it by 2 to 4 billion And that will give you the total number of stars in the galaxy. One astronomer tries to provide the following picture for the scope of the universe. He says, take a box of salt, pour it out on the ground, and then take all the grains from 10,000 boxes of salt, and you'll have all the stars in just the Andromeda galaxy, which is only one of the 50 billion galaxies in the cosmos. And God, God created it all, every grain, every star, every galaxy. Matt Woodley continues, he says, but deep down I think a lot of us are f- afraid in spite of these things that God is, well, he says, boring. Boring. We can make God appear boring by the way we live our lives with a total lack of creativity and wonder and joy. Christians do that a lot. So he says sometimes when we think about going to heaven, we actually dread it, thinking that it's going to be so dull, even worse than life on earth. But if we really knew who God is, he says, we'd be living like a bunch of kids who get a free pass to the best toy store in Manhattan. He said that looks more like someone who really understands who Christ is. If you had the chance to attend our life change class on heaven, then you know that the answer to boredom in heaven in part is, hey, there's lots of stuff to do on the new earth. We're going to get to work, and it's going to be great, and we're going to get to bring the fruits of our labors into God in worship, and we're going to sing, and we're going to play. It's going to be fantastic. So there's a diversity of things that will happen in the new heaven and the new earth. But perhaps the greatest answer is simply what he alludes to at the end, the wonder of Christ. Johnny Erickson Tada writes about it. She says, I remember reading that verse in Scripture about the seraphim, those beings saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty before the throne, day in and day out. They've been doing it the last who knows how many millions of years. And I remember reading that and thinking, isn't that a little tedious? After a while, it's like singing the same scripture chorus for 759 times. You want something a little new, a little fresh. But she says, I think the seraphim must look up and see some new facet of God. And, And then they say again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they look down and they contemplate what they've just seen and Then when they've slightly absorbed that, they look up and there's something brand new about God to glorify. And they said, I never knew that about you before. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. She says, God is infinite and it will take all of eternity for us to express all of our joy. All of our joy. So, so are you there this morning? On the one hand, have you found your way through Christ, faith in Christ and his cross work, Into a relationship with the one who sits on the throne. And if you have, is that the ordering thing of your days? Is that is that why you work and why you parent? And is it is he honored by how you play? Is that what enables you to rest? Is that the center of your universe? James Hamilton wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he, he stops and he says this. He says, um, what will it take to set you free from the world's idolatries, the things, the competing things at your center? He says, what will it take to keep you from trusting in things that are no gods at all? What will make you free from the world's immoralities? What, What will it take to make you untouched by the lust for smut that the world peddles and with which worldlings ruin their lives? What will it take to liberate you from the world's false perspective on the way things are, the perspective that assumes that there is no God, there is no revelation of truth in the Bible, and there will be no judgment? He says, I'll tell you what it will take. It will take seeing God as he really is. Beholding God will break the chains of idolatry because when you see God, you see what deity is is and that exposes the idols as worthless and unworthy of your trust beholding god will purify you from immorality because when you see god you see what beauty and faithfulness are and that exposes the ugliness of adultery beholding god will give you new lenses through which to look at the world because god himself defines reality he's the center okay let's take this last little bit of time together, let's recalibrate. I'd like you to listen to the word of God as it's read, this passage again, and think about the wonder of it. Think about the wonder of being invited into it. Think about the fact that it goes on now and it can be the center of your days. And then we'll worship in song together as we close.
1: After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like a crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created.